Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Today I'm continuing a series that we've been doing over the last couple of weeks called Union, which is focusing on something that I think is vitally important for every believer in this hour, and that is union with God. Now, for those who are new or maybe have missed the first couple parts of the series, what I mean by union with God is, is it's, it's, you know, to use Jesus' analogy, it's like a vine and its relationship to the branch. You know, the branch is dependent upon and sustained by the vine, and it's, that is how we are meant to live the Christian life. In fact, it doesn't work apart from that. So the Christian life is meant to be lived in union with God. And over the last week, um, we talked about the fact that, that, you know, if union with God is so important, how do you achieve it? How do you obtain union with God? What do you need to do to live in union with God? And, and, and what we talked about is it's not, you know, more fasting, more prayer, being more spiritual, you know, doing more stuff at church, that actually there is, it's impossible for us to obtain union with God through our own efforts. Union with God is obtained through what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's only through Jesus that we have union with God. And so the great news is that if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have already been united with God. I think that's such an incredible thing. It's a paradigm shift, really, in how we approach and relate to God. Um, and, and, and if you can let that truth just kind of sink down into your heart, I mean, it really can change everything about how you uh, relate to God. I mean, I would compare it to uh, maybe the difference between dating and a healthy marriage, or maybe, maybe not so much dating, but you know, when you're pursuing somebody romantically and that, that's not really interested in you, and, uh, and, and the difference between that and a healthy marriage. Because when you're pursuing someone, there's a lot of striving, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of, uh, of insecurity, especially when they're not really reciprocating. I mean, has anybody ever been there? Just me? Okay, one of you has, a few of you have, okay. I just will say that most of my experience in pursuing the opposite sex uh, as I was growing up did, did, was kind of like that. It was, in fact, most of my embarrassing moments are related to uh, my pursuit of, of uh, girls that I was interested in that, that didn't turn out so well, and that includes Lauren. And I've shared a lot of these stories before, so uh, if you've been around for a while, you'll know that, that, there, <laughs> that, that, that things didn't go so well for me in the early days of pursuing Lauren. In fact, we met in a, uh, our, our church had a discipleship school. And so we met in that school, and the moment I saw her, I thought, wow, she is amazing. I would love to get to know her. But, uh, you know, she, I, I'd never met her before, so I, I had to work pretty hard to just try to even start up a conversation with her. And, and when I did, when I'd ask her questions, I'd get one-word answers. Um, when I'd crack a joke that hopefully she would laugh at, she just kind of rolled her eyes. Actually, not much has changed in that regard. Um, on one occasion, I was so looking for an opportunity or an excuse to have a good conversation with Lauren that I was driving down the road one day and I noticed my car was pulling to one side and I got out and I looked and I had a flat tire. And instead of being upset, I was like, yes, because I knew that Lauren worked as a clerk at an auto repair shop. And, and I knew that if I just took my car there, she would have to talk to me one way or the other. And that's what I did. I drove a couple miles to her shop and, 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 and I 
thought that, you know, there she was. I thought this is my opportunity to talk to her. And, and we did get to talk, but it didn't go much past, uh, yeah, we can fix your tire. That'll be $30, please. And, uh, and that, that was it. So it didn't really, really go anywhere significant. On another occasion, I, was, uh, I saw her. She, she was looking particularly beautiful one day. And I wanted to compliment her appearance, but I just wasn't sure how to do that because uh, at this point of time, I still wasn't even getting the time of day from her. And, um, and so I, I, I saw that she had this really nice uh, red headband on, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cute. And so what I intended to say is, hey, I like your headband. What came out of my mouth was, hey, I like your headband. You look really Rambo-ish, which if you are maybe not a child of the 80s like me, you're maybe not familiar with Rambo, but that's a reference to Sylvester Stallone's character in Rambo, in, in the Rambo series, specifically Rambo First Blood Part Two. And if you haven't seen the poster, there it is. And you'll see that this is a very similar comparison to Lauren, right? Actually, you know, there's that, that similar matching headband. Um, yeah. You can imagine that that compliment didn't go down very well. And, and it, was, it was just like that in my pursuit of Lauren throughout Throughout the first, what, 12 months that I knew her, it was difficult to, uh, to get past um, just getting the time of day from her. And I think in some ways, you know, that a lot, that's how a lot of us are in our pursuit of God. You know, now, thankfully, we're married. Somehow, God works miracles, doesn't he, that we are somehow mar- married after all of that. Um, so ladies, if a guy awkwardly pursues you, this is just not my point for today, but just, you know, have mercy on them. Be gracious to them because you never know where things might end up one day. But now that we're married, I'm not striving for Lauren's affection anymore. I'm not pursuing her in the sense of, of, of hoping that she'll like me, just trying to get her attention. I'm able to live from a place of enjoying the fact that we already have that connection. We already have that union. We already have, already have her affection, and we get to enjoy life together as a result. And the comparison is that when, when it comes to union with God, I think a lot of us live in that kind of pursuing thing with God, where we're trying to earn God's affection, where we're trying to, to earn his approval and his favor. And so we work really hard, and it can be really awkward. It can, we, 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 it can be uncomfortable, just like all my awkward and embarrassing approaches to Lauren. Uh, we can often work really hard to try to prove to God that we love him, to try to earn our union with him. But it doesn't work, and and that's why I'm so thankful that Jesus has already made it possible for us to be united with him. And so instead of trying to earn God's favor and affection, we can live from that place of knowing that we already have God's love favor, and affection. And the Christian life is meant to be lived as the overflow of that, not as the sort of earning of God's love and approval and favor. So I think if we can just let that set in, it can change how we relate to God. Now, to take this analogy of marriage just one step further, you know, Lauren and I, so we, we have union, right? The day that we were married, we became one, Okay. But that doesn't mean that we always experience just uh, that we float along on a cloud of bliss and that that union is just like all that we hope it would be. I mean, that, that experience of our union can ebb and flow. It can get stronger or weaker depending on how focused and intentional we are in our relationship with one another. You know, if we aren't being intentional 
if we aren't pursuing one another still, if we aren't allowing, uh, taking time for one another, then, then we can easily lose that sense of union that we're meant to have as husband and wife. And it's the same in our union with God. You know, just because Jesus made, just because we've been united with Christ because of what he did on the cross, and because we have, just because we have been union, uh, united with God already doesn't mean that we don't have to uh, guard that union. Our experience of it can ebb and flow depending on how intentional we are being with that. So if you want to experience with union with God, it still requires intentionality, not to earn it, but to actually experience it. So when we do that, when we learn to, when we earn, or when we, when we are, um, when we're in this place of trying to, uh, of, of recognizing that, that, like, you know, just in a marriage, as in a marriage, there can be things that hinder relationship, right? You know, you talk to any marriage expert, and they'll say, usually three things can take out marriages. It can be uh, money, or sex, or communication. Those things ruin relationships, well, it's the same in our relationship with God. There are things that can hinder or mess up our relationship with Him. And so that got me to thinking this week, you know, what, what is it that can hinder our union with God? What did Jesus say would hinder our union with Him? I mean, He talks a lot about being united with Him, so what did He warn us about? Because we want to be aware of the things that can hinder our relationship with God, just as I want to be aware of the things that can hinder my marriage in my relationship with Lauren. And so, I want to go back to the passage that we looked at in the first week of this series. In John chapter 13 to 17, John gives us the account of the Last Supper. And, you know, John, this must have been a very significant event because the book of John is 21 chapters long, and five of those chapters, almost a quarter of the book, are dedicated to this idea that, that or dedicated to the account of the Last Supper. And most of it is Jesus's last words to his disciples. It's, it's his final instructions because Jesus knows that as soon as the Last Supper concludes, he's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed and handed over to die. And he knows this is what's coming and his disciples haven't quite clued into it yet, but, but he knows this is what's coming. So this is one last Passover meal that he's celebrating with them. One last opportunity for him to impart to these guys. So this, everything he's doing at this Last Supper has, I think, an intensity to it, a focus to it. Jesus is, is um, <laughs> he, he's, this is like a pep talk that a coach is giving his, his team right before they head out onto the pitch for a championship match. And so John records it all for us. And the theme of what Jesus says in that last exhortation is union with me. Guys, remain in me. Abide in me. Be one with me as I am one with my Father. And then he prays for them that they would be united with him. But also in the midst of this speech, what he says, or he, he, he makes frequent reference to the thing that stands in the way of us being united with him, the thing that, that hinders us in our union with him. And you would think that maybe, maybe it's like a, a list of sins, like uh, maybe a list of thou shalt nots, kind of like the Ten Commandments, but it's not like that. And you would think that maybe Jesus would warn them about, like, you know, the Pharisees who were responsible for betraying Jesus and, and, and killing him. 
and they would be the ones who would be responsible for persecuting the disciples after he'd gone. You would think he'd warn them about these guys, watch out for these Pharisees, but he doesn't talk about them at all. In fact, he just talks about one thing. It's the world. Not the world as in like the planet that we live on, but the world as in, in the sense of the systems and the structures that refuse to acknowledge God and stand in opposition to him. It's, the world is such a prevalent thing, just something that is dominant over, over all of our experience. I mean, it, it's, it's our normal. It's the kind of, it's, the, it's in the air that we breathe. It's what um, influences virtually everything that we experience day in and day out. It's the systems and the structures that, that, that we just unconsciously accept. It's just part of life. And they're things that, 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 that refuse to acknowledge God, and they stand in opposition to him. And so Jesus talks about it. And if you read through this last address, he keeps making reference after reference to the world. He keeps saying that, that, that you've got to be aware that the world is going to take you out. The world stands in opposition to this, to, to, to everything that I'm about. And so let me give you a couple of examples here. On one occasion, he, or at one point, he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, um, he's saying look, when I'm gone, I promise I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he puts it this way. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. And when he comes, he will actually go back to the previous screen. So what he's saying there is that he's saying, look, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, but the world can't receive him. It can't even recognize him. See, the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about this next week, is critical for us in our union with God. But the world rejects the Holy Spirit. The world rejects, uh, 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 it doesn't recognize him, it can't receive him in any way. And then he goes on a little bit later in chapter 16, he says this, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. And the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. See, this is the essence of what the world is about, is its unbelief. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So, so unbelief is what's at the core of everything, all the sin. See, Jesus doesn't need to make a long list of sins <laughs> because that, it's all encapsulated ultimately in this rejection of God, this rejection of faith in Jesus and replacing it with false gods. I mean, you can list every sort of ism that's out there, communism, materialism, atheism, whatever it is you want to list, Ultimately, it all comes down to a rejection of God. Every other religion or worldview, it's all about replacing this faith in Jesus, the one true God, and worshiping something else. So underneath the world and all of its systems and structures is this fundamental idea that God either doesn't exist or that he's not good or that he's not trustworthy. And so we've got to make life work on our own. And Jesus is saying, that is going to destroy your union with me. <laughs> That's going to hinder your union with me. You can't have that kind of mindset and live in union with me. It starts with faith. It starts with believing that I am good, that I am with you, that I'm never going to forsake you. Even when you can't see me, I'm going to be with you. 
And Jesus then goes on to describe kind of what's behind the world and its mindsets. Where does all this come from? And he describes as the, the, the ruler of this world to be the devil. He describes it as uh, several, uh, twice in the speech, he, he, he refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. He's the CEO. He's the one that's, that's ultimately making things happen in the world that we see today. And, and, and at <laughs> some, Jesus had firsthand experience with this. In fact, in Matthew, uh, we're told of this account of Jesus being tempted by the devil. Remember, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and then he's led out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. And we're told of three of the accounts of these temptations. And at one point, the devil shows him his dominion over the world. Look at this. It says, next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. This is really interesting. So apparently, Jesus, he goes up to this high mountain. The devil leads him there. (laughs) And, And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, presumably in a vision. And what does he mean by kingdoms? You know, we think of political systems, right? You know, governments, uh, uh, kings, that kind of thing. But I, I think it's that, but I also think it's more than that. It's anything that has influence, uh, significant influence over a large portion of society. So in our day and age, kingdoms, of course, would include governments, but kingdoms might include Hollywood or Wall Street. Kingdoms might include the BBC or the Times. Kingdoms might include universities. Kingdoms might include uh, uh, large corporations like Apple or Google. And I'm not making political statements about those things. I'm not trying to say they're inherently evil or something like that. What I'm saying is all of these things have influence over, over us. And, and, and ultimately, the enemy, the ruler of this world, uses those things to shape our thinking, to shape our mindsets in order to, to uh, uh, separate us from God or if we're followers of Jesus to hinder our experience of union with God. So the enemy, he's, he's got all these kingdoms and he shows them to Jesus and he's saying, hey, this I'm going to offer all of this to you if you will bow down and worship me. But Jesus knows. He knows that if he says yes to that, yes, he would have probably unprecedented power and authority and wealth, but he knows that he'll forfeit everything that he came to do because he knows that the kingdom of God and the world cannot go together. He knows that the kingdom of God and the world are, are like water and oil. They cannot mix. And so he rejects the devil's offer and he goes on to offer his life, to rescue us from the world. But we experience, as followers of Jesus, we experience the reality of the world on a regular basis. And Jesus warns his disciples about the the, the sort of enmity, the sort of tension that exists between the world and the kingdom of God. He says this in John 15. He says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. This is a sobering reality, but Jesus is, is making it very clear here that, that, that there's, this, <laughs> there's this dichotomy between the world 
and the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is that when you became a follower of Jesus, that, that you no longer belong to the world, but that you belong to him. You've been united to him. But there's a consequence to that, and the, the, the world doesn't like that because the world wants ownership over you. The world wants to, like he said it there, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. See, the world wants to own you. It wants to control you. And that's why it's constantly uh, uh, controlling the kingdoms of things, especially in our world. It's the media, I think, is often trying to shape how we think about life. You know, the things that we read on the news and the way that those stories are told. The things that we watch on Netflix, the things that we see in, in the cinema, the things that we listen to uh, 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 in our music, and things like that, they're all, they all have a narrative to it. And underneath it all is that unbelief that dominates it. And it's trying to shape and, 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 and change the way we think about things so that we begin to view life from this sort of godless mindset where we think, you know, we just approach things. Even though we say we believe in Jesus, we subconsciously are approaching life like God doesn't exist, and it's just up to us to make life work. And as a result, there's, there's, there's enmity between the world and Jesus, or between the world and the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I'm sure you have. You know, if you try to talk about Jesus in public, it gets a reaction. Like, you can kind of get away with talking about God sometimes, but the moment you bring up Jesus, it just raises the temperature in that conversation. And that's because the world is threatened by Jesus. Ultimately, the enemy is threatened by Jesus, and so it, it makes the world uncomfortable, and there's just this, this hatred that begins to emerge, and, and we just have to be honest with ourselves as followers of Jesus that, that we would love to be accepted by everyone. We'd, I mean, I would love that. I want people to like me, but the reality is, as if I'm going to follow Jesus, there's going to be times when I'm going to be rejected simply because of that, because the world just doesn't want anything to do with him. And, you know, thankfully in this country right now, that, that doesn't look like martyrdom or like overt per persecution, but it does look like rejection. It does look like being ostracized at times. It does look like, like you know, maybe, maybe having to make unpopular stands for things that, that most people don't agree with you with, and as a result, you might lose friendships, or you might, you might struggle to, uh, to, to build up the, the, the kind of things in your business or in life that you want to see happen. And it's because there's a tension between the kingdom of God and this world. So these things all contribute to damaging, to hindering our experience of union with God. But there's one other point that Jesus brings out in the midst of all of this. And he says this in John 16, He says, here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows. And the word that he uses there for earth is the same that he's been using throughout, which is the world. So he's saying, here in this world, you'll have many trials and sorrows. And, and, and I think Jesus highlights this because he knows the damage that... Um, oh, actually, wait, Katrina. <laughs> so, um, he knows the damage that um, that can do to your relationship with him. He knows that suffering and difficulty... Can, can just cause unbelief to creep back into your relationship with him. He knows that, that whether it's the result of, you know, uh, just living in a fallen world, because, you know, that's what this pandemic is, by the way, is I, I really believe it's just the consequence of living in a fallen world that, that this life doesn't 
operate, the world doesn't operate, creation and nature doesn't operate the way that he intended it to because of sin. And as a result, we get things like earthquakes, we get things like pandemics, and it causes trials and sorrows. And we experience trials and sorrows through persecution as well, like I mentioned. But these things, what they do is, you know, you have a choice whenever you encounter suffering. It's either the place where you can meet God the most, or it's the place where, where union with God can really be damaged and severed. Because what happens when we suffer? All of us ask the question, God, are you there? We ask the question, God, are, are you really good? Does God really exist? If he did, then why would he have allowed this thing to happen? And we ask those questions, and that's where the unbelief in the world comes sweeping in, and it begins to, to, to undermine our union with God. So Jesus is warning us here. Here in this world, you will have many trials and sorrows. But the rest of the verse is so hopeful because he puts it this way. He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I find this to be one of the most hopeful verses in the Bible. That word take heart means radiate warm confidence. And Jesus is saying that no matter what trials and sorrows you face in this life, no matter what you're experiencing right now, no matter if you're facing loneliness, if you're facing illness, if you're facing um, economic loss because of this pandemic, if you're facing um, relational breakdown, maybe your marriage is breaking down, or, or maybe there's, you know, whatever trials or difficulties you're facing, Jesus is saying, take heart, have warm confidence, because I have overcome the world. If you're struggling with temptation today, if you're battling to try to, to try to somehow have union with God and you just feel like, hey, I can never get out of this, I, j I just want you to start from this place today that Jesus has overcome everything that you're facing. There is grace through him. There is strength through him. There is power through him to overcome every battle that you're dealing with. So we have to be aware as followers of Jesus that union with God is not going to be uncontested. <laughs> We've got to be intentional with it. We have to pursue him in it. And we're going to talk about, as the rest of the series unfolds, what all of that means. But we've got to be aware that the world seeks to undermine our walks with God at every turn. And so he wants to renew us. He wants to transform us. And, and, and just as, you know, the world wants to control our thought life, as we talked about last week, God wants to transform us by renewing our minds. And so learning how to walk free of the world, learning how to walk in union with him, means learning how to think differently than the world thinks. Learning how to see life from Jesus' perspective rather than our own. And as we do that, we do that with the hope that Jesus has overcome this world. And that means that suffering is not the end of our story. That means that our battles and our struggles, that's not where this ends. It means that, that, that we have hope. We have hope 
no matter where you're at. And I'm just so aware that, that with the news this week and, and the things that are happening, that, that so many of us are just kind of looking for hope. We're looking for some sort of rescue. We're looking for some sort of, some, some sort of intervention from God and, or some, something to happen. Like, is there going to be a vaccine? Is there going to be some sort of rescue from the situation that we have found ourselves in? And I think today Jesus just wants to encourage you. Take heart because I have overcome the world. Take heart, church. He has overcome the world. He's overcome the world, and this trial that we're going through is not the end of our story. Let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you that, that, that we can have hope in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our battles, Lord, of this life, because you are with us and you are for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have overcome the world. Lord, I pray that in every place of hopelessness, Lord, you would bring hope today. Every place of, of despair, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to lift up our eyes to you, to fix our eyes on you, knowing that you are going to bring us through this thing that we, that you bring us through this world. Lord, we love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.